the one read that outperforms all the rest, the data center reads. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the, the fruits of our labor are not uh, evenly distributed. So they will, I think even within a, a market that is, shall we say, doing relatively well, there will be some winners, there will be some losers. A wonderful good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Uptime Punks. Um, I got my lovely colleague with me today, Cash. How are you? I'm very good, Paul. How are you? Good. How, 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 the Welsh, do you guys have a different way, a different language, isn't it? Um, how do you say it in Welsh? So what we like to say in, in Wales, if you only ever learn one piece of Welsh, learn yaki da. It means uh, cheers if you're toasting a drink. And quite appropriately during these uh, COVID-19 times, it means to your good health. Oh, wow. That's that's great. So um, for everybody who doesn't know Cash, Cash is the guy who's looking after the data center world in Singapore. And um, I, everybody knows the podcast and everything. And Cash heard about it. And we had a little sit down about it. And he was like, well, I have some really great people out in Asia. And I said, well, amazing. Our listeners, all of you guys, you want to hear what's going on in Asia as well. So um, yeah, Cash, so what, maybe you can tell people a little bit what you do out in Asia and um, how do you see the data center market? How's it going for you guys? Is it booming? And yeah, and who is your guest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for that introduction, Paul. So yeah, I'm Cash Hassan. I'm the event director of Data Center World in Singapore. So we are Asia's uh, largest and best attended uh, data center event. Um, for our part, uh, Singapore, as you know, is a very small country, but a mighty player uh, within the data center uh, industry. I do believe it's the third uh, largest data center uh, hub. Um, it benefits, as my friend Joshua is going to go into in a short while, into certain benefits from where it's positioned um, geographically in terms of its location. It's also a business technology hub. It has a very, very uh, agreeable uh, environment, regulatory environment for organizations that are looking to build data centers here. And also, if you take a look at any of the uh, major technology organizations, uh, for the most part, their Asia Pacific headquarters will be uh, in Singapore. So yeah, that's a little bit of background around uh, Singapore. I don't know if you have any particular questions. So, yeah, because so I always say that Frankfurt is the gateway to Europe. So I guess that Singapore is the gateway to Asia. Would you would that be the right terminology for it? Or? I would say that's absolutely correct. Uh, most of the data center capacity in Singapore is not actually there to serve Singapore, but some of the adjacent markets and countries in Southeast Asia and India to some extent. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, okay. So you said already Joshua. So what made you bring Joshua? Why, why was Joshua the first person you like, oh, when you think about Singapore, Joshua, he's the pillar. He's the one that carries the industry over there. So what made you, what made you pick Joshua as the person to bring on this podcast? Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. So I arrived in Singapore in October 2019 uh, to take over from James Murphy, who, who's actually now going to work as sales director for Space DC, which is one of the major co-location companies, uh, primarily based uh, in Singapore, but building data centers in Indonesia. And I asked James to put together a, a 
kind of indication of some of the people that I should reach out to. And he said, absolutely, you should reach out to uh, Joshua Au. And I have to say, uh, it was one of the best recommendations uh, James has made. Uh, Joshua is what I would like to describe as a data center uh, community activist, uh, all round uh, good guy, uh, friends and man of the people of all of the event organizers, all of the associations, and absolutely was my first point of contact when you said you wanted somebody that could talk passionately about the data center industry, knowledgeably about the data center industry. And also he has a passion for tal talent development in, in terms of some of the hot topics. Uh, and he's a good guy that likes to laugh, can take a joke and enjoys a bit of banter. So I thought it ticked all the boxes, Paul. Okay, perfect. So let's hear what Joshua has to say. Well, hello. This is the, another episode of the Uptime Punks, and we have a lovely guest from a little bit further away this time. Uh, Joshua, welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm glad to be here, and this is my first time, uh, and I hope not the last time as well. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you came You came um, highly recommended by uh, Cash, who is an expert in the data center industry himself. Um, in Asia, so that's why it's uh, it's a great honor to have you here. Um, I'm just going to start um, straight away because we always have these little questions we ask everybody just to get you a little bit warmed up um, to see, um, yeah, who you are and um, what made you the person you are today. So, if you can tell me, like, what is your what is your favorite gadget that you discovered during the COVID lockdown time? Because um, we have seen some really interesting things. I mean, we had some people that got earpods so they can sit in the jacuzzi and listen to podcasts. Some other guys got some uh, smart bulbs. Then um, somebody discovered Spotify. They didn't even know that Spotify this, uh, existed before COVID lockdown. So what was yours? All right. Uh, well, for myself, I think it would have to be Kindle. Only because I, I've not been able to go to the library. So the only okay. way I get to read is, is through Kindle. Um, do you have a favorite book? A book you can recommend to everybody? Or? Uh, yes, it's a. Uh, it's. I think it's a very good read uh, for anyone who's in this industry, lifting the floor. And uh, I think Michael talks a lot about the impossible tasks that he faced uh, building up uh, some of the earliest data centers uh, in Europe. And even though it's in a well, to me, I'm in Asia, uh, so I I can't relate to some of the things that he said. But as I read through the chapters, I realized that there are some. Uh, very obvious parallels. For one thing, uh, they are in our ecosystem, even in my part of the world, you have uh, many stakeholders who have very huge egos. You have many stakeholders uh, whose life and death depends on the data center. Mm. They may not run data centers, but as a customer, they need the data center to run in order for the business to survive. And hence, everyone runs on almost on the point of paranoia. So you, you will find that uh, in our industry, we see lots of extremes. We see assholes. Uh, I'm notorious as one as well. I make no apologies about that. Uh, I think we are full of, of people who act on the point of paranoia. But it's because data centers power the way we live, the way we work, the way we play. Uh, a data center might just be a building to some of us. But to the right customer, it might be the means that gives him the tools, the compute, where hospi hospitals are able to run essential services are able to run, and even for the scientists whom I think are looking for a cure for COVID-19. 
I'm sure they need a data center to run in order for their good research to carry on. So my recommendation, lifting the floor, it's a must read for all of us. Wow. Uh, this sounds like a great book. I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to get it myself even and read it because it's quite interesting what you just said. This is some of the topics we even discussed in the previous podcast, which is like data is just everywhere. Everything that has smart in front of it just has a data center behind it. Um, coming to the next point, um, do you remember what was your first mobile phone? My first that's mobile a, phone. That's that's a good question. I think I think it was a Sony Ericsson. I think I, I used to carry like four or five phones, and uh, because I I worked for a company that did uh, mobile app development, so we had to test all the, we had to test test the same app on more than four or five uh, different phone sets. So we did, you know, the Motorola's, the Sony Ericsson's, uh, the Nokia's. So we had lots of phones in the office. <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, do you remember your first experience with a computer? And which computer was it? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a very tough one. Um, I don't quite remember what it was, but I do recall that... Um, uh, all, all the work that we did, uh, it ran on Sun OS. So when, when I was in university, that was the first time I encountered uh, a terminal. The first time I had connectivity. I was connected to something other than myself. And, uh, and unfortunately, it was running on Sun OS. So we had to learn it the hard way. We had to tell that. We had to, we had to learn all the arcane languages. Uh, but but that, was, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so um, was that then your first experience with a computer? When was your first time you stepped into or you got in touch with the data center industry itself? I mean, you didn't just walk into oh, a, a little, data center. That's a little, dif that's a little different then. Uh, I think that would have been more than, maybe more than 15 years ago, uh, because uh, uh, in, in, my, in my past life, uh, when I was in the private sector, uh, we supported various clients who happened to be regional uh telco operators. So we were in uh, places like Manila, we were in places like Jakarta, we were in places like China, and we would work with the telcos, we deployed our IT systems within their telecom data centers. And that was our exposure to a server room. So in my past life, I, I, I did not have to manage a data center, but as a customer of a data center, I put my compute in all these server rooms. So that was my exposure and I was uh, suffice to say, I was very. Uh, I think I was troubled. I was almost, uh, should I say, shocked. I've I've been to some data centers where there are no racks. I've been to some data centers in my part of the world, uh, at least in the old days, where um, you, you actually see fish tanks. There's a particular place I visited it, and there was a fish tank just in front of the server room. And in this particular place, I, I saw fish, I saw cats, I saw dogs, and there was poo on the floor. It's a server room. It is what it is. Wow. So okay. It's, wow. A, it's a cultural shock for me. Uh, <laughs> I think it takes all sorts. And um, I, I met a friend yesterday, and, and, it's, and I think Cash might know who this friend is. And I shared that, um, you know, when I started out, I thought, you know, data centers are about standards. It's about um, meeting certain technical requirements. But it took me a while to change my mind that data centers are really 
a business. And businesses are about meeting business needs. So even if you don't look like a data center, but if you serve the business needs of the operators, you serve the business needs of those who pay the bill, actually it does what it does. So uh, when, when I was stationed in Manila, I've seen many data centers that don't seem like data centers. They don't meet most of the requirements that we will find uh, comfortable with or familiar with. But it did its job in a very elegant manner. More importantly, it made money for the customers. The, cus the customers made money, the operators made money, and they kept building uh, new data centers which probably don't fit our, our concept of tier one or two. But, but they continued building, which meant that it was a profitable model. Uh, when I was in China, uh, I, I co-located in two different data centers. And in a particular data center, I was shocked to, to visit a particular facility. I will mention where and what. Uh, they had thousands of racks, but they had no racks. In, in a sense, it, was, it looked like a library where all the compute were placed on uh, shelves and all, all the IT systems were readily available because you had no physical enclosures. You could access your systems, but you could potentially access all the thousands of other systems as well. So how did they manage to get around that? I guess the devil's in the details. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Um, le let me ask you something else. Um, so we have an hour named Uptime Punks. The name Uptime is there. We ask every guest to define for us what does he understand of the term uptime. What is uptime to you? How do you define uptime? That's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a serial moderator uh, and Cash knows that. So I, I moderate for a lot of folks and at the same time, I speak for a lot of folks. So I'm always very wary about trick questions. Um, but if I had to be very blunt, I think uptime might even mean different things to different people. To me, it's really about if the customer wants something and he gets it delivered, uh, or else may fail, but he gets what, what he wants based on certain terms, that's uptime. So for example, if my DSIM fails, does the customer care? Not really. Uh, if the lights don't work once in a while, does the customer care? Not really. But there are certain things which have a direct impact on the uptime, or shall we say, the availability of the service that is essential to the customer. So unfortunately, it is what it is. I, not all things are weighted equally. If a light bulb fails, do I really care? Not that much. If the UPS fails and takes out all my IT systems, I will be very concerned. In fact, I'm sure the team will be very concerned because after they solve the problem, they will be, they will be out updating the resume. They probably should because we are, we are operating in an industry where everyone operates on the point of paranoia. More is always better. Uh, but of course, some customers are willing to pay for the paranoia. Some customers just want to be paranoid, but they don't really want to pay that premium. Okay, wow. That's, that's a nice way of defining it. Um, so we finished with the questions, but of course, I'm sure there's much more stuff everybody should get to know about you. So why don't you share a little bit more about what you do at the Agency for Science and Technology and Research in Singapore, what got you there? And sure. if you went straight there from college, you said already in your previous life and uh, in your past okay. life. And yeah, I, I, had a, I had quite a, <laughs> well, I would say a more colorful life. Uh, 
uh, colorful past life. So uh, I graduated, as all of us would have, and then uh, I worked for a few years uh, in the private sector where uh, I was was in a software development house, which happened to uh, have a lot of deployments around the region. So we, we got to travel. We were stationed in uh, different data centers throughout Southeast Asia, got to see a lot of interesting things. And at some point I said, I need to come back because uh, I'm getting married and it's difficult to have a married life. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just more difficult to be married and stay married when you're traveling every four days. That was my assessment then. So I decided to move back to Singapore with my wife. We were newly married and I got a job where I eventually became the, the data center manager for the government data center for Singapore. So I did that for some years. And, and then I decided that uh, now that I'm married and I have kids, uh, there are other commitments. I need to slow down. It sounds wrong, but it, it is what it is. I needed to slow down. So I decided to move from supporting uh, something that supported very, most of the government agencies to just supporting one particular ministry. So in my case, I decided to make a lateral move to a particular organization that happens to be the, the research and development arm of the Singapore government. So I'm playing, moving from a bigger fish tank to a smaller fish tank with I would think almost lesser responsibilities. Uh, and that's that, that was my decision. Uh, I've learned different things. Uh, I think in each customer side, there are different nuances. So in the past, I was very concerned about making all tens of dozens of customers very, very happy. And now I'm more concerned about keeping that one customer happy. So... The tricks are a little different, and in my case now, I get more acquainted with things like what's HPC, what's Infinity Band, because in the HPC space, in the in in a space of academia, uh, there's a slightly different language here. Yeah. Um. Well, what would you say is the biggest challenge for the data center market in Singapore? Um. Or how do you see the market developing over the next five to ten years? Is it, is there going to be a boom? Is it um, do you guys have big projects in the pipeline? Um, I think it was yesterday Greece announced a $1 billion project for Microsoft. Um, then I put a post up on LinkedIn, but Cash already put me back in my place and said the post was from two years ago. But well, you see, this is why we start the podcast, because it takes two years until news about 800 megawatt data center reach uh, Europe. So, um, yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit more. Sure. Um I, I had a similar conversation yesterday with a mutual friend of Cash. And, and I, I kind of shared that Singapore is a very special place where uh, in, in the early days, like you know, more than 100 years ago, we benefited from our physical geography. Because of our physical geography, uh, we benefited from physical trade because of trading routes. Uh, and I think in the past 50-odd years, we benefited from economic geography. Because uh, when the oil industry had, had its boom, uh, we were a hub. We were conveniently made a hub. We were able to provide ancillary services because we had the resources to, to provide add-on services to those who are in the oil industry. Uh, of course, we are more than that. But I, I, I'm moving toward a certain narrative here. And I think because of certain, shall we now say, 
internet geographies, we are benefiting. I, I, I recall, I think we have more than 25 subsea cable landings, uh, well, cables, not the landing stations. So if, I think we have more than 25 subsea cables landing in Singapore. We have, uh, I believe, the, the most diverse, the most number of subsea cables in our part of the world. And to add to that, uh, if you refer to telegeography, uh, apparently we have, we are, I think, number six in the 2018 report that says that uh, as uh, as uh, international hub, we have the most throughput in terms of international traffic, number six out of 10. Uh, I think Hong Kong was number eight or number nine. And that says a lot because it means that we have more bandwidth and likely more throughput than Tokyo, South Korea, Sydney, Shanghai. Of course, we are ignoring terrestrial, uh, terrestrial traffic. So we have the benefit of uh, internet geography because of the subsea cables. We have the benefit of climate because in terms of talent, in terms of infrastructure, we are way ahead of many others. That is why if we refer to a lot of um, due diligence reports that talks about my part of the world, we often talk about the mature the, the mature markets. It could be the likes of uh, Shanghai, Sydney, Tokyo, Singapore, Hong Kong. Uh, there are certain advantages that that we can continue to ride on, but at the same time, there are certain things which are on the horizon. We know it's there. So certain things are against us. Certain things are for us. Are we at a good place? Yes. Uh, will we always be at a good place? I beg to defer because I think we're at a point where things could pivot and there are a lot of undercurrents. You never know, you know, in, you know, in one year, the world has changed. And when it changes, you will have new winners, you have new losers. It is what it is. As, uh, as an industry, I think the internet industry, the data center industry has surely benefited because if you look at the performance of the reads, the one read that outperforms all the rest, the data center reads, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the, the fruits of our labor are not uh, evenly distributed. So they will, I think even within a, a market that is, shall we say, doing relatively well, there will be some winners, there will be some losers. Uh, I, I'm sure the, who the winners are is well documented. Uh, what are the advantages is well documented. Uh, JLL talks a lot about it. CBRE talks a lot about it. Cushman Review talks a lot about it. I'm sure RBS Capital has some interesting insights. Uh, I'm sure Structure Research has some interesting insights as well. But I think what's against us is that slowly but surely, we're looking at a more fragmented internet. Europe, US, Asia has different nuances. I think as the barriers, uh, the cross-border barriers gets higher, it might mean different things. But of course, there are many undercurrents. Like for example, I think there's a there's a new cable that's up and rising, uh, up and coming uh, that's going to connect Asia to Europe uh, through the Arctic. So recall some years ago they talked they spoke about China Finland. So now there's another cable that's going to attempt something similar, uh, which I think is going to cross Russian waters as well. So when you have new subsea routes, it changes the geography. When the geography changes, uh, I think the winners and the losers are redistributed again. So where does Singapore fit in all of that? I think what we need to do uh, as a, a very small country is that we need to stay relevant and we need to be on the lookout 
how to continue to pivot and change to be relevant to all the players. And that, that, that in turn will get all, uh, all the, uh, the right parties to co-locate in Singapore, to build in Singapore, to invest in Singapore. So I, but I think for now, at least in the foreseeable future, I think the sun is still bright for us. Oh, that's good. That's a bright outlook there. Um, maybe you can tell us also a little bit about some of the most exciting projects you guys have worked on in Asta, because I, from what I saw, you guys do even some stuff with the other um, other entities, not just data centers, or maybe there's something that's co-located and connects sure. some, of the, some of the cool projects. Okay. I, suffice to say, uh, I, I, I will not... I, I, I will decline to talk about what my organization is doing since it's not about my organization. I happen to work for them. They happen to pay me. I'm very grateful. Uh, so I will speak from a, a different perspective. Uh, I happen to be a judge for Broad Group. Happen to be. Happen to be judge for DCD. Uh, I've, I'm a guest trainer for DCD as well. And as a moderator that's done good work, be for Closer Still, Carrier Community, uh, Terrapin, DCD, W Media, and some others. Uh, when I participate in some of these conferences, uh, regional conferences and localized conferences, you realize that the dynamics of each country are very different. Very, very different. In, in Indonesia, they're talking about uh, certain compliance landscapes. In India, the focus, the narratives are slightly different. In China, again, it's a different animal altogether. So in my part of the world, I think specifically for Singapore, the biggest challenge, I think, is we need to learn to work with the regulators, the policymakers, because they have certain objectives, we have certain objectives. I, I, I'm sure that narrative is true wherever you are. Uh, I, I'm sure our friends, mutual friends in Amsterdam, they faced that uh, for some months, and now they're coming to terms with some of these challenges. We are having the same challenges, and uh, it's not clear to us when the moratorium will end. It should end, it may end, but is it going to end? Well, I guess the devil's in the details. So we have certain constraints. Uh, I think constraints could be in terms of uh, the permits. The constraints could be in terms of, I think, even planning for capacity. And something you would notice of the five mature markets, uh, which you would hear from most of the, the due diligence reports. Uh, if you're in Australia, Australia has a hinterland. If you're in Japan, Japan has a hinterland. That's why there is uh, digital realty in Tokyo and there's digital realty in Osaka. Is it, a, is it a, a coincidence? I don't think so. But it just means that the market, it could grow, it could soak up the demand and it could spread that demand inward because they do have the land and with the land and the resources, they have greater potential for growth. Uh, unfortunately, the same doesn't hold true for Hong Kong. Uh, that's if you if you treat Hong Kong as a standalone entity, and and you don't really have a hinterland for Sing for Singapore as well. So what does that mean for us? That means that we have to be very shrewd in the way we plan for land, and in for and for infrastructure, because it has to compete with other right. I would think other national priorities, housing, industrial, so forth and so forth. So. It's not, uh, it's not that straightforward. So these are things that we need to be mindful of. 
Joshua, uh, thanks uh, for, for giving us the insight. You know, we are coming here from the European side, as Paul said. Uh, we are, uh, I think we know a little bit about, or we know about the European side of the market. But, uh, you know, uh, we are doing, a, we are a training company, and um, there's this new standard, EN5600, that's uh, going to be an ISO standard by 2023, an international standard. And uh, you pointed out very, um, yeah, very bright about the, the the, the walls between the countries, the obstacles you have to count. Do you think that a standard can help maybe to overcome this? Um, what are your thoughts on that uh, due to the fact that you said you have been a trainer, you're in the training industry. What are your thoughts on coming up a standard here, an international standard, and that's going to happen by 2023? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say something uh, as an uh, observer. Uh, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of my friends, but as an observer, and, and I would agree that I might be wrong. Let's agree to disagree. Um, I think it's all about the customer. There are some customers who are in love with the Uptime Institute. It is what it is. I respect that. I love the Uptime Institute as well. There, there, we, I'm sure we have customers who are in love with TIA 942 for various reasons, and maybe even TIA 606 and, and so forth. Uh, I myself, I'm a big fan of BitC002. In particular, six pages in BitC002. I love these six pages. The rest of it, not so much. It is what it is. So when you put it... If you, have, you have to know that we started with BitC. So I'm very familiar. We are a licensed company. Till 2015, we started in 2007. And we've been licensed and introduced that standard. And that basically, that's the way we grew. But... but I talked to the Bixie guys on the conference in Las Vegas, Anaheim, where they have, and they look, there is a new pin standard coming up. You have to reflect uh, that. I, 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 think that. I think last year they, they, make a, they made a big splash with 002 and 009. And uh, I think with that, there's, there's a lot of ancillary literature. There's a whole lot of it. My, my, my challenge, because I'm also a customer, as a customer, I would have to ask myself, am I getting bang for buck? I, I'm putting... The standard aside, I'm putting, um, shall we say, national interest. Uh, let's ignore the fact that it, certain standards come from certain places. Like if I were American, I would love NFPA 70E. My American friends are in love with NFPA. It's almost a fetish. <laughs> Again, it is what it is. But if I were not in the States, would I be in love with NFPA 70E? Maybe, maybe not. Because if in different parts of the world, there are different references. And some of these references, because they are enshrined. Like in the Philippines, there is the Philippines uh, Code of Construction 2015. Uh, for example, in Indonesia, you have certain government agencies with their enshrined, um, shall we say, compliance codes. Uh, like in Indonesia, you're talking about Ojeka, you're talking about GIT, you're talking about GR71. Even in Singapore, I, I hear that we need to clear more than 20 over permits. In India, more than 40 over permits from probably more than 40 different departments. So am I concerned about the standard? The standard is important for its own reasons. But as a business, what I need most is to make sure that I don't run afoul of the law. So as a business, as a customer, my first priority is to be able to run my business and to sort out the things that will not stop me from running my business. So for example, if there's a certain electrical code for that country, 
I have to comply with it. And if it screws with, unfortunately, if it screws with the OCPF, if it screws with NFPA, I have to make an informed decision. So I think the priority is always with what I need to do from a legal point of view. So that's the priority. Now, once I've sorted out what I need to do because I don't have a choice, then what if I do have a choice? Especially in my part of the world, it's very interesting. You will see many facilities which are 942 certified by uh, our mutual friend, Edward. Uh, you would see some sites which are being blessed by the Uptime Institute. And I have friends with the Uptime Institute. I, I love what they do as well. And even in China, there's actually, a, a, I think, a movement to create something similar uh, with uh, their local compliance codes as well as uh, something that's akin to a certifying body. So because they are local efforts, and these local efforts are so disparate, I think for the states, it's a lot easier because even if the states compete with each other, but they, they have the same design philosophy. And I think throughout Europe, even the Nordics, uh, as much as they are, shall we say, sectoral differences, but the design philosophy is very consistent throughout Europe. So you have consistency throughout US, you have consistency throughout EU, but there is no consistency in Southeast Asia and in Asia Pacific. If you go to Japan, and then you go to China, and you go to India, in fact, you could be Indochina crossing from state to state to state. In each state, it's a different universe with different rules, different constraints. And I think the to overcome that, that's a political challenge. It's not a it's not whether a standard is good enough. Because to me as a customer, uh, a standard is just a means to an end, but I don't worship the standard. And I say this even though I used to be a member of the Green Grid and I love the good work that the Green Grid has done. I don't always agree with them, but I love the good work they've done. Now, should all of us follow all the good advice? I think we can't because... There are thousands of good advice out there and some of the advice might even contradict each other. So where do we draw the line? Unfortunately, I think the way forward is customers will decide because customers pay the bill. If today... Sorry. Joshua, sorry. But uh, no, no, uh, thanks for giving the insight. And uh, in summer times, I agree. Some I, I disagree because I see a big opportunity. I say, of course, you have to fo focal uh, local governance. Yeah? Um, but what, what um, we are experiencing here from the European side, and that's why I think it's great to, to have the, the, the Asian side here online, is uh, the EN5600, this standard, we started on the European side, it's going to be an international one, um, was very, very received by the companies, by the industries, because they were, of course, even in Germany, we are federal, you know, you have local regulations if you talk about fire protection, you know, I'm here in Frankfurt, they have a different law than we have in Bavaria and then the other 16 states, yeah, but um, the way I see it, and this is what we hear from our customers that are global players, like VW, IBM, um, they say they were waiting for the standard. And the standard doesn't, it, it's more like uh, the way they have written it, the team, is a guideline. Hmm. It's, it's not, you know, there are several ways to achieve the availability, what we are working at in the end in the data center industry. And uh, they were waiting for 
one standard, and this is where we see the big opportunity, at least from the European side, that you have one standard, you um, can qualify um, the availability of your data centers as well that you can certify or or train your uh, persons, you know, the, the people who are working in the data center based on one standard. And I think this is the big opportunity. This is it's a big picture. And then you have, of course, you have to reflect um, uh, the local um, uh, compliance you have to take from from the, from the governance. But uh, this is uh, the way um, this developed in 2015. Uh, it was introduced uh, within less than two years. It uh, was all, all over Europe. Yeah, and 2017 they become international. And I'm talking about the big picture. And um, that's, we would have met, you know, we have met in Singapore uh, now in November on the show with Cash. Uh, unfortunately, this is now on a podcast, but hopefully next year. And uh, so that's that's great that we um, that uh, we can discuss that and and see what's going to happen or how you see that if this might be even an opportunity that you say so far the Germans were uh, uh, doing uh, qualifying the data centers after the European norm the US uh, was doing for sure for uptime and the Asia is in between as you said 942 yeah Asia is just very fragmented and. It's at a point where you could move from place to place and you wouldn't be able to, be able to tell, are we a 942 shop? Clearly we are not. Are we a UTI shop? Clearly we are not. Uh, 506, not so much. We, and there are clearly many fans here because uh, I, I've, I've spoken to the, 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 the local chair for Bitsy in Singapore, in Thailand, uh, in the Philippines. I think Bitsy is a very strong movement they have a lot of hardcore fans, um, but commercial adoption, I guess it's uh, it's just a, another challenge for them, uh, at least in terms of the customers. Because I'm coming from a point that it's the customers who pay the bills, so it's the customers who decide on the trends. Uh, and slowly but surely, customers will become more shrewd, they become more informed, and the questions they ask, the priorities they have, will then shape what sort of compliance we'll go for. And sometimes it could be a case where you see it happen in certain parts of the world. Like in, in Australia, um, they are very interested in certain things. Slowly but surely, some of these trends cascade out. Slowly but surely. Because customers need to first see the benefits of it. And because the design philosophy is not that consistent. When I talk to consultants in Europe, uh, I'm, I'm getting the impression that the design philosophy may differ, but most of them uh, have a pretty consistent fundamentals that they all agree upon. Same for US, but in, in Asia, even from state to state, from operator to operator, because it's just so diverse, uh, it's, it's that fr fragmented. So I guess we are probably quite a long way from seeing uh, most of us agree on what is fundamental. But I think once we agree on that, we are one step closer toward it. Now, would I, would I like to see a common standard? Yes. Uh, I'm wary of it, but I would like to see it. And perhaps the standard might not even be an overarching standard. It might even be an effort to harmonize different opinions. So I have, I have uh, friends who are in the emergent space. They love what they do, and, and, and I appreciate that. I, have, I also have friends who are not in the emergent space. 
they believe that they can achieve the same outcomes through other methods. Now, am I saying A is right, B is wrong? No. But what I would suggest is both of them need to have conversations because these are the conversations that will mobilize customers. When customers get involved in these conversations, when customers start to become more, shall we say more educated, they can make more educated choices. That's where customers start to vote with their money. And then operators will follow because if Equinix thinks that, that customers like a certain style, they would invest in that certain style. Um, and, and I think that was true for DSIM. You know, there were, there were certain good years where all of us were on board. We all wanted our own flavor of DSIM and all of us got excited. The customers got excited because they were sold on the concept and, and on the benefits. Uh, but so far, I think not, not many people have been talking to the customers about what are the benefits of adhering to certain good ideas and good practices. And, and I, would, I would even concede that sometimes some of these practices may not fully apply. Uh, I had a very violent objection, uh, almost conversation with uh, someone who is not a friend of Edward. He's not a friend of Edward, but they refer to the annex. And you might know the same annex that says something about waterways. And so this particular consultant said, you know, yes, we, we have achieved all of this. And I said, no, I disagree with you because you're ignoring certain uh, convenient facts. Because it doesn't fit into your narrative, you ignore that, you know, in this part of the world, waterways are unavoidable. So how do you achieve that? I'm not saying you ignore Ascendant. I'm not saying you ignore the Annex. I'm simply saying you have to uh, acknowledge some of the constraints. You can work around the constraints because that's how you work with ISO 27000. I happen to, to work with a lot of friends who work on the ISO 27000 space and not not... Not, not every facility gets a tick on the 114 controls. They might get 90 out of 114, 80 out of 114, but that does not mean they're not going to be certified. It simply means they qualify. And, and when we can agree to qualify and we can agree on, on what are the fundamentals, I think we are a lot closer to having uh, something that may look like a body of best practices that we can all agree upon. Joshua, uh, thanks very much for uh, giving you your opinion on this topic. Um, I think uh, time will show us how it goes. And uh, as you said, we will do that on a regular basis and see how it's developing and picked it up. I would like to um, discuss another topic and get your insights from the Asian market here. We talked about the standards you give us uh, about the data center market. But in the end, we had a great podcast yesterday. I think it's all about the data. Let's talk about uh, security. What are the requirements? Uh, how you, the customers? It's all about the customer. You know, we are building the data center uh, in order to <clears throat> we can proce process our data. But how do we make it secure? What is uh, how is the, the what's going on in the Asian market here? You know, we have different laws here in the German part. We're very restricted. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an, an overview? about what the legislation and the compliance issues concerning data in the Asian market? Um, I have, I think my views might even be a little unpopular, uh, but it, it seems that we are seeing a fragmentation. Uh, when EU talks about Gaia, and I think 
Gaia has its merits. I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, I, it has its merits. But when EU starts to have something akin to Gaia, when US has something akin to it, and when Asia has something akin to it, what does that mean? It means that we are, instead of breaking down the walls, we are erecting new walls. And with new walls built around the internet, we end up with FIDOMs. Once we have FIDOMs, where, what's, where's the value in having a hotel carrier? Where's the value in having an internet exchange or an IX exchange? Because what made the internet work extremely well is that it connects all of us. It is the great denominator. It evens the, the, the level playing field. Someone in Myanmar, someone in um, London, someone in Finland, everyone gets access to the same internet. Uh, a little slower, a little faster, but with the same access, they have access to the same opportunities. Granted, not it, we are still some, some distance away from that, but I think that's the aspiration of having a global internet economy. And it seems that because we are having these issues with governance, I'm not saying these issues are not valid, uh, but with these issues, it brings about concerns. It brings about a lot of, shall we say, um, efforts to counter that connectivity. So when uh, the, the US FCC says, I'm going to disagree to certain things, you know, I may not agree on certain connectivity routes. That changes the geography of the internet uh, because where, where subsea cables land changes where traffic goes. So to me, that's one thing. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's, 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 that, that adequately answers the point you asked about security. I think security is multifaceted. Subsea cables is an aspect of it. Connectivity itself is an aspect of it. And, and it's, it's something that will take us months to, to talk about. Truly months. But I, but I think there are some fundamentals. There is the IT aspect. And I'll leave that to the IT experts. I think there's the physical aspect, and I leave that to the physical experts. But you will notice that if you visit different places, they think of security very differently. And let me give you an example. Uh, even in my part of the world, there, there, are, there are certain countries where if you visit the facility, they have a gate, they have a fence. But you know it's a friendly fence. A friendly fence, I like that. Someone who is not too intoxicated uh, you give him 10 minutes, he would likely be able to climb over the fence within 10 minutes. Uh, and there are places where it's not just a fence, it's a fort. Even if you had a gun, you wouldn't be able to pass through. You wouldn't be able to pass through that gate. And um, I've, I've spoken to, I've visited certain sites where they've made a lot of qualifications in terms of how to design the roads so that, you know, if you have a huge vehicle and it's, it's trying to gain enough momentum to crash your, your gates. They wouldn't be able to because the road makes a very sharp bend, which basically means even if you decide to be a suicidal bus driver, you wouldn't be, you would, you would likely kill yourself, but you wouldn't be able to get enough momentum to crash through the main gates. You, you know that this is basically what they wrote down in the new version that's coming out basically in three months from now, that you need a bended road uh, in order to comply. Hmm. That's but what we do on the European side. I, I, I think my, my biggest fear is that 
security has become such a pervasive and yet such a complex matter that no one can can have that adequate oversight. There's so many possibilities, and I'll just quote a few that I, I don't have a, a full grip on drones. Can I stop drones? I can't. Uh, securing manholes. Do we have all the facts? I don't have all the facts, but I'm pretty sure that that if I wanted to take if if I had uh if I had if I had, if I hold a grudge against an ex-employee or employer or what so be it, how difficult would it be to find the right manhole and dump some flammable fluid to take down the exchange? Possibly even the national exchange. Could it be done? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not saying it should be, I'm saying these are possibilities. So security falls into the, the physical aspect, which there's so much to be said. It falls into the OT aspect. Again, there's so much to be said because it, you then go down to the arcane path of do I need to secure my PLC? Do I need to secure my mod bus? Do I need to stop putting things on, putting industrial systems on the internet, which I personally think is a very bad idea, but people do it. And then there's also the, the telco systems. Are they vulnerable? Very vulnerable. Because I worked with the telecoms for, for some years. So I'm, I'm always mindful that it's not impossible to take down a cell tower. It's not impossible. It's not impossible to make use of your SS7 vulnerabilities. Not impossible. I don't know how to do it myself, but I know it's not impossible. So when there are so many vectors that you could take down a facility, a site or an IT system, what can you reasonably do? You have to live on the edge. You have to be paranoid. You have to think about all the worst scenarios. But again, you can't do you can't do the tens of dozens of recommendations. So you have to hedge your bets and focus on what you think are the most likely to be exploited. That's why we work on the gate. Even though the gate doesn't cover the entire place, but the gate helps you to get started. So I think customers need to get started on the conversation because they don't want to be taken down. But then again, customers, their primary role is to run a business. It's not to become the next IBM or the next Deloitte or the next, they are not IT firm, though, though they are powered by IT. So most customers don't really have the bandwidth, the, the, the finesse, you know, to think through how do I, how do I address all, all the things that could be compromised from a security point of view? So my suggestion, we, have, we can only focus on the fundamentals and perhaps there are certain things which are out of reach or maybe, you know, the science will tell us this can be done, that can't be done. But we just have to hedge our bets and focus on what matters the most to us for now. Thank you. Paul, you have a question? No, I think it's really great. I mean, we're getting some really great insights here. Um, much appreciated. Um, and Thomas got some of his favorite topics, the ISOs, um, which is <laughs> always something he likes to speak about. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up one thing, which we picked up in the last couple of podcasts with our guests. It's um, that there's a shortage of data center professionals. Um, that is something we found in Germany, where there's a shortage of professionals. Um, there's not really a young generation coming, um, which is training in the industry. Maybe they don't see this relevant. Maybe they don't see this interesting. Um, good example, for example, maybe this is something new even for the people um, listening to us, hopefully then from Singapore. 
Um, in Germany, um, a lot of German data center operators, they go now into um, some of the refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria, recruiting people out of there because you have people with engineering backgrounds that can be easily trained. They speak the language. Um, is that something you guys experience also over there that you say, well, there's a massive shortage for people that can operate data centers. Um, there's, there's, there's no next generation coming. Um, everybody's in their 40s, 50s now, going to retire in 10, 15 years, and then um, who's, who's going to take control? Okay. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, merits a very long answer, but I, I, I'm just going to maybe just go on a few few points uh, and i'm sure if, if you if you talk to gary gary will get so excited because he's going to brag about his five c's he, he will i know he will um we can't do that in singapore but we are getting there um i would suggest that if you refer to uh Vertif, if you refer to 451 if you refer to uptime institute all of them have done studies and most in fact, all the studies all suggest that uh, the first generation of engineers are all going to retire in the next five, seven years, and which means we are all screwed. Because where are the young engineers coming from? They're not coming from the, the, the trades. They're not coming from the vocational schools. So what does that mean for us when people retire and no one replaces them? Uh, Singapore, I think we are slightly better than some of our neighbours, only because we have a very strong emphasis on engineering. There are a lot of engineering graduates. And I think no one, I, I don't know of a single person from my part of the world that studied something in school and said, I'm going to work in a data center. And that suggests that there's a failure on the part of industry to lobby, to advocate, and to market itself. Why should everyone want to work as a, as a YouTube or social media influencer? And yet, the money is with the data center. The money is with the cloud. The money is with the OTTs. That's where the money is. I think if bright young men and women realize that there's money to be made, it's a good industry. Yes, it's very screwed up in certain ways, but it suits certain personalities. And if you have what it takes, you you are set for life. Uh, I met I met someone reasonably senior from a particular operator, uh, and the operator has assets in your part of the world as well. And, and he shared a very interesting story. He interviewed someone, and this interviewee, very young person, uh, was given a chance to look at the electrical, electrical schematics. He took a look and he said, Sir, you have a problem. This particular line is wrong. Either the diagram is wrong, it's wrongly documented, or you are screwed. And he brought this back to the consultants and the builders and they, and, and they studied the diagram, the schematics, and he realized he was right. He found a mistake or he found something wrong with the discrimination. Someone relatively young. And so he told him, he told, so the, this friend of mine said, he, he told his HR, you have to hire him. This person is worth his weight in gold. He might have just saved me millions of dollars. Now that to me is like a fairy tale. Now, how often does that happen? More likely than not, you have graduates who, who apply. And, and suffice to say, there are not many recruiters who recruit for our industry. So number one, we need to work with the recruiters and we're not doing that, that enough. Uh, number two, I think as an industry, we are not telling 
people that we exist. They don't know we exist. They consume YouTube. They consume Facebook. They consume all these services. But they don't come to the realization that all of this is powered by the internet and the internet is powered by the subsea, cable, subsea cables and the data centers. So why aren't we recruiting more people to join the subsea cable industry and the data center industry? Because the people are there, but they don't know we exist. So the recruiters need to, need to buck up. I think as an industry advocating for people to join us, we need to buck up. I think we need to. And sadly, I think the schools need to buck up because uh, the schools aren't really grooming people who are being taught the fundamentals of how to run, to build, to design, to operate, to look at the life cycle of a data center. I know there are um, pockets. You know, Dr. Terry is in your part of the world. I know Prof. Yun is in your part of the world. Um, I know there's IT Sligo. Uh, there's the likes of, um, you know, CNET is active, EPI is active. Uh, I think in, in, in the States, there are, are probably less than five universities. I'm not referring to the, to the Marys College. I'm referring to the community colleges in North Virginia. I'm referring to the South Methodist uh, University, I think in Texas. They have uh, graduate programs. And I've, and I've seen the syllabus. It, does it teach you to build a data center? Not really. But it, it teach, it, 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 it's a, a good two or three year program would give you some fundamentals. And it is what it is. So I think Singapore is well positioned, but it is not best positioned. Because to groom talent, you need to have a good action plan. Uh, talents do not grow by accident. People do not accidentally decide to learn about SS7. They don't accidentally learn about ASHRAE TC 9.9. They don't. They don't. They don't figure out by accident that there's such a thing called PUE. And then they don't accidentally read the white papers. Uh, people don't accidentally learn about transformers and power discrimination and how data centers, because data centers is real estate play. It is infrastructure play. There's the subsea cable consortias. There is the IT. There's a structured cabling. And, and there are dozens of standards. And, and sometimes we have to be conversant in uh, some, if not all of them. I refer to BCC2 for certain things. I refer to 942 for certain things. I take reference to UTI, where I think it's very helpful to me. Do I need to believe in all of it? No, but at least I need to have a clue. And, and, and I think that's that's the challenge. We need talent, and I think we're going to have a shortage of, challenge, of, of talent, but we are not getting enough, and we need to be more intentional in grooming them, finding them, and I'm sorry, I'm going to pivot. That is where I think Infrastructure Masons is doing good work. It's shameless of me to say so because I'm a member of the Infrastructure Masons, but, it, it, but I think they're doing they're, they're good, good, uh, good work in this space. Joshua, uh, perfect, and uh, thanks, Paul, for for asking this question. Um, uh, this is basically what uh, pretty much um, I would reflect at what we're experiencing experiencing here in the um, European part. And uh, we had uh, as a podcast yesterday, and you said, uh, I think we agree um, here on the podcast that uh, the data center industry needs a bigger lobby, um, people out there, you know, if people ask me, what are you doing? I'm, I'm doing training in the data center industry. And there are big question marks, you know, 
And this is what is hurting because uh, you cannot uh, study to become a data center engineer because no one knows what it is. So um, are there any Asian uh, or any initiatives? Yeah, you are lucky. You're in Singapore. A lot of engineers, you know. But um, are there any initiatives out there from a side that you say to make uh, to, to cre create awareness for the data center market? Because this is, I think, what we need. Because um, when I talk to my, my students, you know, they and uh, you're young, you're 20, you know, and um, uh, you you get the knowledge, you get you understand what is about, you know, about the standards. Then basically, you have a lifelong job. You can choose, you know. There, there's uh, so much work you can do. Are there initiatives to to raise the awareness? Well, it's interesting that you said that because I'm reminded of something I I I, uh, I attended an Azure activity, and uh, well, it was an on-premise activity, and and I watched the advertisements they played at the Microsoft office, and this particular advertisement advertisement talked about how Microsoft is going to Vietnam, going to some of the villages, uh, the disadvantage, and giving them learning opportunities. It's a, like a scholarship program. If you sign up. We will groom you, we'll teach you the skills, and after that, you work for us. So are there similar programs? I think there are pockets, but these are, by and large, isolated and pretty small. Uh, is Microsoft doing that in US? Yes, in some of the colleges. And, and we all follow common friends on LinkedIn. I'm sure you've seen some of these uh, heartwarming stories about how Microsoft does this, Google does that. Kudos to them. I love it. But I think we need to take it up one notch. Uh, in Asia, uh, I think there are, yeah, there are some, not to me, notable uh, trends. Uh, I think the Thai, uh, the, the chairman of the Thai chapter for BC, uh, he has a program in his part of the world. Uh, I've not seen it for myself, but I've, I've, I've heard about it from him. Uh, in Singapore, we have, uh, I think, uh, a six, nine-month program uh, that a particular university came up with, and they're doing it in partnership with Facebook, and I believe with CBRE, where they are trying to uh, allow, I think, professionals in mid-transition to take that, that nine-month course to, to be grounded in the fundamentals. And some of them would be well-positioned to join, well, possibly, maybe the Facebook data center, maybe to work uh, under CBRE to be seconded into certain uh, operators. Uh, there, there is a particular vocational school and... Uh, and they are good friends as well. And they have a work and learn program. Great, great concept. So what I mean is uh, someone who graduates from a vocational school has had maybe, I don't know, three years, two years of uh, vocational training, which means they are more hands-on because they are more closer to the, to the, the traits of it. And they're then given the option to, be, to work on a certain program where the government sponsors a small part of the pay. That, that is to entice operators to hire them so maybe if i had to pay a thousand dollars to hire someone and this is someone new uh, the government agrees to maybe pay a small percentage of it so that operators would be inclined to hire someone who had no experience because he just graduated so the government is trying to make it easier for for these graduates to be hired and at the same time it's a work and learn program where throughout i think two to three years they have to go back to school uh, every, I don't know, a few weeks, every quarter to continue uh, the education in, in some of the 
data center fundamentals. So there are certain programs, not big ones. The cohorts are still pretty small, like, I don't know, 50, 60. It's not in the hundreds, but these are positive trends. Well, that, that's uh, great, actually. You're, you're way ahead of what we are doing here in Europe. Uh, Paul, correct me, but uh, I we haven't had that. We, we talked about initiatives, and there were a couple of people tried to push it, but it was not supported by the government. And uh, of us. I, I, I should have said this earlier, but um, I'm actually, uh, well, I, I had planned for uh, data center and cloud bootcamp for uh, tertiary students. I, I plan to, to make it happen this year. Spoke to some friends. Some friends were very excited. And these might even be mutual friends. Some friends were not so excited. It's okay. Uh, so some operators said, well, Josh, if you pull this off, we will join you. We will be glad to put up a booth at the back and, and send our recruiter to talk to some of them. Because what I wanted to do is do something similar to uh, for example, girls who code in, in, in the States. They are giving practically free training, boot camps uh, to young women so that they, they know enough to make an informed decision whether they want to study coding when they grow older. And that's what I think needs to be done. Yes, we need to talk to the adults. We need to talk to the fresh graduates. But we also need to sow some seed in, in those who are in that impressionable age. Maybe it could be 15, you could be 16, you could be even 20. Before you decide to embark on a, on a three to four year engineering program, if you had been told by uh, someone trustworthy that there's such a thing called data centers, you know, if you know YouTube, you should know that YouTube is powered by a data center. If you use Facebook, you should know that Facebook is powered by a data center. If you buy something through AWS or Amazon, you should know that Amazon at the back is powered by a data center. So why not think about working not just for Amazon, but work for the data center that powers all these e-services. But someone has to go to the children and tell them, hey, I'm not going to bore you. I'm going to come down to your level. If you like TikTok, I will talk to you through TikTok. If you like YouTube, I'll talk to you through YouTube. I'm going to speak at your level with language that is accessible to you. And just to give you some very basic ideas. To make to make it to make the idea a lot more, shall we say, more accessible to the younger generation, and I, I'm going to share this idea. I actually spoke with uh, some friends and I said, uh, "We want to do this," and and they said, "Sure, we'll be glad to participate." And I, I spoke with uh, some friends about why don't we build a data center on Minecraft? Kids love Minecraft. Kids also love TikTok. I don't understand why, but they love Minecraft as well. Uh, and Minecraft just pushed out some new features. Imagine if you could build a fully functional data center with the service halls, with the gensets, with the crowd, with the NOC to scale. I think that would do a lot more than what most governments are doing in terms of creating educational opportunities. Because what it means is children, in, well, I'm not, I don't want to say impressionable, I would, I would say uh, maturing children, well, young adults, they will be able to experience what a data center is in their own terms. They could decide, well, do I actually like what I see? And if I do, at least I now know there's such a thing. And maybe if you could put put some uh, avenue where they could then know where to get more information. I think that would be great. I'm, I'm hoping for the day when, when uh, someone who's 14 years old 
could talk to his friends and, and say, you know, I, I visited a data center on Minecraft or on uh, something equivalent and I liked it. Should I, you know, if I liked it as a game, maybe I would like it as a profession as well. Joshua, that's, I think that's really perfect. You know, um, Paul's was Paul's idea to come up with the podcast, the Uptime Punks, yeah, to educate and get the word out there. You know, we are in a way, uh, as you said, you have made it easy. You've had create awareness. That's just the first step. And I like the Minecraft idea. Uh, that's absolutely a visionary here. And um, next time, actually, we invite you. Uh, we want to have a live demo of the Minecraft, Josh. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But this is uh, this is the spirit of of of, of the uh, of the uptime punks here. Yeah, let's talk about the data center industries so or people who are not yeah deep in like us. You know, we basically grew up, learned it from the very beginning. I've been in the industry now for more than 30 years, basically ever since I can walk. You know, my first jobs were always involved in data centers, and uh, there's so much opportunity. And uh, there are so many good things, and um, I agree to you. You know, get the word out there. Um, I, I actually, I'm. Um, I think it's great that you are, are ahead of us. That you have initiatives where you basically uh, even uh, sponsored by the government to um, to to create uh, to get uh, talent out there and educate people in the field. But uh, I think we all have to agree and we have a big opportunity with um, Cash and Paul from the data center world to make, uh, to get the word out there and um, say, wow, it's going to be something really, really amazing for the next couple of years or whatever. It's all about, Tom, it's all about inspiring people. That's all we're here to do for. I mean, I mean, Cash, uh, we, for a living, we, we inspire and hopefully nature the market and bring people like you and Joshua and Tom a little bit forward, a little bit closer to everybody. And yeah, we hope that this podcast today has inspired people again. Um, the last word is always with our guest of honor, Joshua, some, do you want to say something, some last words? We just leave it with you. Data centers are here to stay and data centers, the people who power data centers are used to do impossible things. So I, I think we always need to remind ourselves that we are here because of many miracles. At the same time, we're here to create more miracles. Okay, thank you very much. And thanks for having you on the podcast. And um, stay positive and, uh, well, positive mind, negative test. That's how we say it over here. But um, yeah, so thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Right, thank you. Well, it was great sharing your insights from Asia. Wow, Joshua. Um, yeah, it's an interesting guy, Cash. Um, nice guest you brought us there. I mean, he had some really nice points he made about the data center community, about um, educating younger people. Um, then Minecraft was also part of it, um, how he's explaining to people, well, even if you watch YouTube, there's a data center behind it. It, it almost seemed like he he's quite frustrated that he gets many times probably the barrier of the, young, the younger generation, which is just um, doesn't think about, well, I'm eating, well, it's who said it the best? Yes, uh, yeah, Gary. Gary, Gary, when he was on the podcast, he said 
The problem with the young generation is they know how to eat the bread, but they forget that there has to be a cornfield in order to eat the bread. And it's the same, I think, with the younger generation when it comes to tech. But enough said is enough. Um, Cash, I think you have some updates for us, what's happening out in Singapore. You, um, For everybody out there, so Cash is doing on a weekly basis um, an update. It's a bit of, well, actually, I'm going to let you explain yourself what made you, what inspired you to do it and what you actually tried to do with it. Yeah, no, great question. So during um, our lockdown, which was uh, called the circuit breaker, as uh, many people was experiencing, it was difficult to one, hold on to your sanity and to actually even identify what day of the week it was. So what I started as a fun kind of business-like activity was a, a weekly video roundup on LinkedIn. So despite my initial nervousness of you know, being in front of the, the camera, I thought it was just a you know, good way to round up the news. There's lots of activity happening in Singapore and it's just grown to be a fairly popular feature. So as long as it's popular with the data center community and the cloud service providers in Singapore, I'll continue to do that. And yeah, you can catch that on LinkedIn uh, every Friday, uh, Cash's weekly roundup. Um, so yeah, tune in. So lots of activity. Um, can, can you, some of the highlights, um, have you, have you, um, have you well actually no have you made some updates and somebody told you to take it off or um has that happened no uh, the updates are available um so the more like market and individual updates are available on my weekly roundup i've also got a blog so if you go to my linkedin page you can see all of the past posts on data center news over the last 12 months and all of the weekly roundups and it's become quite a valuable resource for organizations who are looking to have a quick kind of spot check in on on Singapore and the wider Asia Pacific market. But look, from a big picture perspective, you know, there's some key themes. All of the US based hyperscale cloud companies like AWS, Microsoft, Google Cloud, IBM Cloud, all have established meaningful data center footprints in Singapore. Um, if you look at some of the, the Chinese hyperscale companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, uh, Bitdance, uh, Kingsoft Cloud, JD Cloud, are all examples of China-based hyperscale companies that are projected to expand internationally and view uh, Singapore as very much a, a strategic market. So what we see is both on the hyperscale cloud and the large media content and tech companies, that's really driving demand for data center capacity and will do so uh, in the foreseeable uh, future. We're seeing data centers, a strong asset class, there's an influx of investment capital, high valuations for data centers. Uh, we're also seeing some telcos considering exits and looking to sell some of their uh, assets. And as other markets in Southeast Asia continue to mature and develop, absolutely Singapore will continue to be the, the data center uh, hub for the next three to five years. And it's just perceived as a more safe haven compared to some of the more perceived by the industry developed markets, riskier developed markets like maybe Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and um, India. And if you want to get a top line overview of uh, some of the key themes, I would recommend uh, structured research, excuse me, structured research is a YouTube channel, which is um, led by the excellent uh, Jabez Tan, who's a good friend and colleague of Data Center World in Asia. So plenty of resources if you're uh, interested in learning more on uh, all things hot in Singapore's data center world, Asia. Oh, that's great. Okay, so, yeah, um, thank you very much for listening and thanks for the update, Cash. And you guys, if you want to get some Asian updates, um, you can follow Cash and he's going to be a regular guest. Um, we're going to bring another guest in a couple of weeks who 
is an ex-colleague of ours. So sorry, James, you have to come back and do the podcast with us. So he probably doesn't even know yet that he has to come, but now it's official. So <laughs> he doesn't have a choice. <laughs> but um, yeah, so thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And uh, please press subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out to any of, any of us on the team. If you're in Asia, reach out to Cash. If you're in Europe, you can reach out to me. And then, um, yeah, we take